Be seated, please. I want to say a word of thanks to our musicians, without whom it would not be Easter. We need those brass instruments and timpani drums and combined choirs. We thank you very much for your contribution to our worship. I'm reading today from the last chapter of Matthew, chapter 28 of Matthew. This is the same text that we looked at, those of you that were on the hillside with us a while ago this morning. Pastor DeBruin had some comments on the early part of Matthew 28. My comments will be a different emphasis than he brought. By the way, you, you know those who were at that service because we smell a little smoky. Uh, we had about six or eight barrels burning with wood in them to keep warm up there, and I told folks uh, in order to get to the head of the breakfast line, you have to pass a sniff test to see if you smell like an early morning Christian. It's a great time. Join us next year if you can. We'd we'd love to have you. Chapter 28 of Matthew. Listen as I read the first ten verses. This is God's Word. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven And going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him, they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. And now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid and yet filled with joy. They ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. May God seal his word with understanding and with a passionate joy in this great truth that it puts before us today. Once I knew the story of a father and his son who shared a very deep love of the out-of-doors, doing almost any kind of outdoor hunting, fishing, camping. The dad loved these things, and he taught his only son to love them as well. He taught the, the son survival skills, how to sight the stars and find his way, how to track wild game, how to live in the wilderness with a knife and a blanket and some matches. And one day when the son reached the age of 14, the father decided he was ready for a significant test that he would give him. 
he asked the young man to let him, the father, have a 30-minute head start as he departed off into the woods. And he said, son, I want you to follow me. I've taught you the skills you need. I'm not going to go out of my way to, you know, give highly significant signs, but I'm going to leave enough sign that if you're observant and you do the things you've been taught, you'll be able to follow. And then we'll, jo- we'll be joined up when we come to our evening camp, which was about 10 miles away. Well, each of them had a rifle, and the agreement was that if either got in serious trouble, he would fire three shots, and the father would come to the son or vice versa if there was a real difficulty. So the father took off, and the son waited, as he was told, 30 minutes and followed. And he found a boot print. He found some scuffed moss and disturbed leaves to show, as he'd been taught to follow, the signs of his father's passing. But then it seemed like the way got more challenging as he went along. He had to climb in and out of some rocky ravines and go over an area where there were many downed tree trunks. And then he lost the trail and had to double back and find it again. And the boy began to have some panicky thoughts. Into his mind came this idea, well, maybe I'll be lost and I'll never see Dad again. And he actually contemplated just firing the rifle to have Dad come and get him out of this dilemma. But then he slipped down a muddy hill, and his rifle flew out of his hand and smashed against a rock, so the action was jammed, and he knew now that he could not fire a signal shot if he needed to. So now he was really concerned. He had to wade a couple of streams. He had to push his way through patches of brambles that tore at him. And after a long day of weary following and climbing over rocks and trees, cold and wet and exhausted, he finally saw the campfire and knew that Dad was just ahead and gratefully came into the camp. Well, after they ate their evening meal, father and son talked about the day. And the son's feelings began to kind of overflow. He said, Dad, this was really tough. And it was dangerous. Do you understand I might have drowned in that creek that was above my waist? I could have been knocked unconscious in a ravine. My rifle wasn't working anymore. You wouldn't have known what what had happened to me. This was a tough thing, Dad. And the father answered and said something like this, Son, every place we went, there was a reason. The only alternative to that muddy slope where you fell was almost a one-mile detour. The reason you were led through the brambles was because there was quicksand on either side. And there's two things that maybe you're not appreciating or not realizing. One, I had to go everywhere you went, and I went first, and my way was difficult too. But the other thing that you don't know is this. I stopped at least every 10 minutes, and looked back until you were in sight, and I knew for sure that you were behind me. So there really was no time, hardly, when you were out of my sight, or no period of more than 10 minutes, when if anything had happened to you, I would have known it, and I would have been at your side, rifle shot or not. 
Well, I take that story, which is true, to be a parable of the Christian life. A life in which we trust a risen Savior who goes on in front of us to our eternal destination, and yet who watches over every step we take as we follow after Him and walk by faith. There are so many things said in this text of Matthew that we could put emphasis upon, and there are things here that I'm not going to mention or emphasize at all. The the angel himself, the earthquake, the stone rolled back, many wonderful things here. There are really just two phrases that I want to fix upon. The one I'll speak about briefly and the other at greater length. The first is the phrase, he is not here. And the second is the phrase, he goes ahead of you. The first one, I think, he is not here, tells us about the bare fact of the resurrection. And there are many times when on Easter we perhaps try to prove that fact or or go over with you the proofs and the clues that are in history that establish that for us. I'm not doing that today. I'm going to mention he is not here a little bit, but then I'm going to go on to look at the phrase, he goes before you, which to me emphasize the consequences, the so what part of the resurrection of Jesus. First of all, he is not here. I'm sure you've had the experience I have. If you're young and your mind is working 100%, maybe not, but most of us whose minds are not working 100% anymore have had the experience of parking the car in a big shopping lot and then coming out after a few hours, and you, know, you have a pretty good idea. You think you have a good idea of exactly where the car is, but it isn't there. And you look and you say, well, I'm, I'm sure it was row A, aisle 2, and you look up and down, no car. And you think, well, I'm going to have to call the police, but my cell phone's in the car. What am I going to do? And you look and you look and you go down the row over here and the row over there, and then, why, goodness, it's in row C, you know, completely different than where you thought. There are people who actually will say that was the problem with the women at the tomb. They came to the wrong tomb. Well, we certainly can't dismiss Easter with anything quite that lame. These women knew where they were. They had been there just 48 hours before. They had witnessed the body being put in the brand-new tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea. It wasn't that large a place. There weren't hundreds of tombs there. In fact, a a tomb of a rich man like this would have been a fairly singular, unusual place to be buried. They came to the right tomb, but the recent occupant was no longer there. And we have this emphasis of the angel, he's not here. Come and see the place where he lay. In fact, in Luke chapter 24, there's words added to this, why do you seek the living among the dead. It's a reproof. It's a rebuke in a way. And you say, well, was it fair to rebuke them? How, how were they to know? Well, I think it was a, a rebuke of love. You're looking for the right person, but he isn't here. He still exists. He's still in the dimension of time and space reality, 
but he's not right here, confined as a dead, cold body as he was a short time ago. And we know, of course, that God has given a host of clues and logical evidences that we could add together and recite as many times we do on Easter to convince if anyone has an open and impartial mind to be convinced. That's the problem. Many people, their minds are closed to the subject. They don't want to hear the kind of evidence that exists. But if you approach that evidence and look at it, there's no better conclusion to draw than the fact that he was here. He was dead, but he's not now. He lives. And in fact, if you would deny the kinds of proof and logic that exist about the resurrection of Christ, you begin to have a problem proving or believing any event in all of history because there are very few ancient events better attested to than this. I think of Luke's words, why do you seek the living among the dead? In a manner of speaking, if it's a dead body you want, then the graveyard's a good place to look. But why do you look for one who predicted he would live in a place of dead people? It makes me think of the way in which we often try to insist that Christ should be with us right here, right now. Let me see you, Lord. I drove in early this morning for the sunrise service. I had the Christian station on, and someone was singing a song, I have seen Jesus. Well, I hope the person was speaking spiritually. Unless they were one of these first visitors or original apostles, they didn't see him with their physical eyes. We don't see him with our physical eyes, but we want to. We get in trouble. We get in a crisis. We're suffering. We say, Lord, I want to see you. Give me some tangible proof. Be here with me. Pay a courtesy call on me. Sit here with me and be miserable while I'm miserable. Where's the Lord now, people say? Where is he when I hurt? Well, the right way to seek is not to say, Lord, come, be with me in the graveyard while I mourn. Because the truth is, Jesus Christ is not in the graveyard for a very good reason. He's gone ahead to do for us much more than he could do by merely visiting us in the graveyard. He's not here. Well, I want to go on to the word that is spoken as perhaps one of the little-noticed phrases in verse 7 of our text. You might say, it seems to me when, when you're done this morning, Pastor, like you emphasized, one of the least important things in this whole text, the, the drama of verses 2 and 4 you didn't describe at all. And you fixed upon this phrase, he is going ahead of you. What's so big about that? Well, I want to show you this morning why those words, four words, he goes before you, are really wonderful words with many applications that speak to us with strength in our Christian lives. They promise to us as believers that our risen Lord did not simply rise victorious and go away to leave us to muddle along and do our best in his wake. When the Scripture says He goes before you, it is declaring that Christ does not expect us to set foot anywhere in the remainder of this earthly life or beyond, that He has not traveled there first to mark the way and to be there to greet us. 
And in fact, our Savior needs to be ahead of us to pioneer the path to the next place where he desires us to be. I've got five different ways I want to show you the truth of this this morning. One is this. One way the Bible teaches that Jesus goes before us is in the fact that he went before to build for us the bridge of salvation. He opened up a passageway through sin and death. Before him, death was like a box canyon. You know the the old cowboy movies, if some of you can remember, there are always these canyons that somebody would ride in to escape, and then they'd find out there's no way out. And the posse or the bad guys, whoever was behind them, would have them trapped. Well, that's what death was until Jesus Christ, a box canyon. You went into it, and nobody could see a way out. The best, the best hope that the Old Testament saints had about death was, well, somehow God will deal with it. We don't know how. It's always interested me that there really wasn't a specific, well-defined idea of hope in death in the Old Testament. It was, it was there. It was, well, the, the Lord will take care of me. I'll be with the Lord. But they didn't really know beyond saying that. Well, in Jesus Christ, what was a box canyon became a tunnel. And, you know, tunnels can be threatening, There's a kind of phobia that some people have. They can't go through tunnels, especially the kind that go down under a river and back up again. The thought of what's above really is hard on them. Well, death is that kind of a tunnel. You go into it, and you can't see the light at the other end, but it is a tunnel. Because of Jesus Christ, it is a tunnel. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20 says, We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us. Hebrews 12, 2 speaks of Christ similarly and calls him the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He went where nobody went before to open up the way for us to be forgiven and accepted before God as he offered himself In place of the sacrifice of our death for sin, he died for us. You could compare it to the Old Testament Day of Atonement, the great holy day in Israel. Not the Passover, but the Day of Atonement. That was the day when the high priest would go into the innermost part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, a small room where no one ever went. You didn't send a cleaning lady into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest went there and only on the most sacred of occasions. He went there with the representation of the sacrifice of blood for the people. The concept was, of course, very easily communicated that, that it wasn't that God was inside that little box, but the, the, for the people to understand symbolically, this was the inner dwelling, the holiest place where you came and confronted the awesome purity and power and righteousness of God. A little-known fact is is that when the high priest went there, he had a rope tied to his ankle. And the concept was, look, if something happens, if God strikes our high priest dead, I'm not going in there to collect the body. So if he didn't appear, they would literally, the idea was pull him back out because nobody was going to go in there and dare face the living presence of God. So when the priest did emerge, you see, 
he came back out, and there were often cheers. The people would be waiting in, in stony silence. Will God accept the sacrifice? Will God forgive us? The priest came back out, and they reasoned, well, if the priest went before the holy God and he came back again, God must be pleased with our sacrifice, and they would cheer. Well, that's a good reason why there's so much cheering and so many hosannas and hallelujahs on Easter Day. It's a matter of greeting Jesus with a shout of joy for what he accomplished in giving the sin offering to God who accepted it. He pioneered the way for us, building a bridge of salvation. Another way we could say he goes before us is that Christ becomes our guide through all of tomorrow's unknown experiences. We had a guest in town, uh, Dr. Chapel, who spoke to us at the missions conference, and I was driving him to our home, and we crossed the Conestoga River. And I mentioned this is the Conestoga River from which Conestoga wagons got there. He was quite interested in that. He never knew there was a Conestoga River in Lancaster. And I thought of that, and I thought of the Oregon Trail 170-plus years ago when people started crossing in those rickety wagons that were originated, I believe, here in Lancaster and were named for this body of water here in Lancaster. When they first were going to Oregon in their Conestoga wagons, you know, there was no well-mapped-out way with these signposts, you know, with nice white arrow signs, Oregon, turn right. There wasn't anything like that. You know how they got there? The earliest parties went in only one manner. You had to secure and pay for the services of a mountain man who knew and had been over the Rocky Mountains and knew the passes, knew the ways through, that was the only map. There wasn't a really good map, you know, that said 15 miles here, turn there, do this. The map was in the mountain man's head. He knew the Indian tribes. He knew the arid, dry areas. He knew the watering holes. He knew the rivers and the mountains. He could get you there. And I would say there's a good comparison in that for the way in which Christ goes ahead of us and has been wherever we are going to know our tomorrows. He's our living guide. We don't have the map, but we have the guide. And if you in your life are praying, oh God, just tell me what's coming next for me. That's all I want to know. What's what's the next thing for me? I was reading the devotional writer Oswald Chambers who said in one of his writings, instead of telling you what he will do next in your life, God reveals to you who he is. And that is much better. And that's exactly what we get in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We learn who God is. And we learn that he has been where we're going. He knows the way. And he will providentially guide, protect and lead his people as he's revealed to us the way of God in his word. There's a third sense in which he goes before us. You might think of looking to the 14th chapter of John for this one. For we learn there that Christ departed physically from his people so that he could come back and abide and dwell with us by his Holy Spirit. This is a wonderful subject unto itself that I'll just suggest and not develop here. 
In John 14, 18, Jesus promised the disciples the night before he died, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Well, right there in that same nearby passage, he explained what that meant. He said, the Father will give you another comforter to be with you forever, even the Holy Spirit. The promise, I will come to you, I won't leave you as orphans, and the promise of the Holy Spirit are the same promise. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, said, the third person of the Trinity will come and dwell with you, and as he is with you, God in you, the unseen spirit, I am with you. I am with you as my spirit is with you. The Holy Spirit is God in the present tense. So when Jesus would later say at the end of Matthew, I'll be with you even to the very end of the world, it was in the Holy Spirit dwelling in the people of God that that came true. Christ departed physically so he could come and abide by the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, the words he goes before you, I think, apply to believers this way. Jesus went ahead in order to be in the place where he would intercede always with the Father for us. Because of his intercession at the right hand of God, prayer becomes a real thing. Without it, there would be no prayer. Many of you who have been out there and working in the economy for a number of years know that if you've lost a job and had to find another one, it's, of course, important that you have a resume and that you have perhaps an education and some skills and some experience. Those things all count. But another factor that everybody knows does count. Besides your skills, your education, your resume, is the factor of who do you know? Who can put in a right word for you? Because a lot of times just getting a door open for the right interview makes all the difference. Well, Jesus went ahead of us in his resurrection so that we could always say, I know the key person who is at the right hand of God. And as I go to God in prayer, I know that he prays for me. He speaks to the Father about me, wonderful and amazing as that seems. Hebrews 7.25 said he ever lives to make intercession for us. Romans 8.34 says Christ Jesus who died and more than that was raised to life is at the right hand of the Father interceding for me. We can pray because of Easter. And fifth and finally, the risen Lord Jesus Christ goes before every believer for this reason, to guarantee our eternal dwellings. John 14, again, I go to prepare a place for you, he said, and if I go and prepare that place, I'll come again, receive you to myself, that where I am you may also be. You know, philosophers of all stripes, believers and non-believers and skeptics alike, have speculated about whether there's a heaven or a hell and what eternal destiny is like. They've produced all kinds of speculative versions of that, fantastic ideas, many of them having little or nothing to do with Holy Scripture. But Christianity does not give you speculation about the life to come. Our hope of eternal life is founded on the one person who has been there and has come back. 
young people and many adults alike love the fantasy novels of J.R.R. Tolkien, one of the great novelists of the 20th century. In his first book, besides his trilogy called The Lord of the Ring, but his first book, which everyone thought was an innocent little children's book, but it's really much more, it's called The Hobbit. And in Tolkien's book, The Hobbit, we meet an unlikely little statured man named Bilbo Baggins. Even his name is humorous. Mr. Baggins is a very ordinary guy. That's one of the most important things to know about him. He's nobody special. He's not gigantic. He's not muscular. He's not even brave. But he is taken on an adventure to faraway places in the company in this book of a wizard and elves and dwarves and a dragon and treasures. And he comes back after a long journey to his little humble home in the Shire and sits down to write his memoirs. Now, another thing about Bilbo Baggins, he's not only an ordinary homespun man, but he's not very creative either. And after he writes his memoirs, he has to give them a title. And here's the most imaginative title that Bilbo Baggins could think of to to write on the cover of his memoirs. He called it, There and Back Again. I always love that. There and Back Again. Because to me, that's a title that could be given to the hope that Jesus Christ gives people who live under the shadow of death. And they don't think they can ever get out of the place where they are and the hopelessness of death. But Jesus goes there and comes back again in order to lead us across the boundaries of things we can't imagine. So that when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me, although he were dead, yet shall live. We can believe it. We can believe that we can go there ourselves, because he has gone and come back again. It's knowing that that's in my mind when I pray at the bedside of a dying person, when I speak with relatives who have lost someone in a sudden way or a tragic way, or when I speak at a funeral and know that there's a lot of pain at at the loss that has gone on. I don't point people to syrupy, sentimental thoughts or to speculative philosophy. I'm glad to be able to point them to the only historic, live person who is the way to God, Christ, who went before us in his resurrection body and came back, guaranteeing that we would be like him when we see him as we as he is now, and guaranteeing that we can be spiritually alive in a different way today. We can literally be, what he says, a new creation. And so our faith takes hold of this Christ who went there and came back again and says, because he lives, I can also live. This Easter morning, this beautiful day that the Lord has given us, I urge you, to put unqualified trust in the one who goes before us. You can dwell secure in knowing that Jesus Christ does not expect you as his disciple to set foot anywhere that he has not visited first to prepare the way and that he is not superintending every step of your journey 
so that he might bring you safely home to God. Christ the Lord is risen indeed. Our Father, establish us in this fact. Whatever circumstances in each life here where we might be inclined to doubt this or think we're alone or imagine that the difficulty is is too great and we don't even have the means of firing warning shots in your direction to let you know, remind us, Father, that you see us, you know us, and that in Jesus Christ the way has been opened for a disciple to come, not in our own strength, but in the strength that you give and the hope that you give, that we too might see you face to face. We glorify the Son who accomplished this. In his holy name, amen.